Chapter 21 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand. Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 21 The Porporina judging that her companion was determined not to exchange a single word with her, thought she could not do better than respect the singular vow he seemed to observe, after the manner of the ancient knight-errants. In order to escape the gloomy images and the sad reflections which Carl's recital suggested to her, she compelled herself to think only of the unknown future which opened before her and by degrees she fell into a reverie full of charms. Only a few privileged organizations have the gift of commanding their thoughts in a state of contemplative idleness. Consuelo had often, and most frequently in the three months of isolation she had just passed at Spandau, had occasion to exercise this faculty, granted moreover less to the happy of this world than to those who contend for life in the midst of labor, of persecutions and dangers. For we must indeed recognize the providential mystery of circumstantial grace, without which the strength and serenity of certain unfortunates would appear impossible to those who have never known misfortune. Our fugitive found herself, moreover, in a situation strange enough to give rise to many castles in the air. That mystery which enveloped her as with a cloud, that fatality which drew her into a supernatural world, that kind of paternal love which surrounded her with miracles, was quite enough to charm a young imagination rich in poetry. She recalled those words of scripture, which in her days of captivity she had set to music, I will send one of my angels to thee, and in his arms he shall bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. I walk in the darkness, and I feel no fear, because the Lord is with me. These words had henceforth a clearer and more divine sense for her. In an age when men no longer believe in direct revelations, and when the outward manifestation of the divinity the protection and assistance of heaven are translated under the form of assistance, affection, and devotedness on the part of our fellow mortals. There is something so sweet in abandoning the direction of our own destiny to those that love us and to feel ourselves, as it were, borne by another. It is a happiness so great that it would soon corrupt us if we did not struggle with ourselves not to abuse it. It is the happiness of a child whose golden dreams upon the maternal breast are not troubled by any apprehensions of real life. These thoughts, which presented themselves as a dream to Consuelo, at her sudden and unexpected escape from so cruel an existence, soothed her in a holy delight, until sleep came to drown and to confound them in that kind of repose of body and soul which may be called a conscious and enjoyed annihilation. She had entirely forgotten the presence of the mute companion of her journey, when she woke quite close to him, with her head resting on his shoulder, 
At first, she did not think of moving. She had dreamt that she was traveling in a cart with her mother, and the arm which supported her seemed that of the Zingara. A more complete awakening made her feel the confusion of her mistake, but the arm of the unknown seemed to have become a magic charm. She secretly made vain attempts to free herself from it. The unknown appeared to be himself asleep and to have mechanically received his companion in his arms when fatigue and the motion of the carriage had made her fall into them. He had clasped his hands together about Consuelo's waist, as if to prevent his letting her fall at his feet while he slept. But his slumber had not relaxed the strength of his interlocked fingers, and it would have been necessary to wake him completely in attempting to disengage them. Consuelo did not dare to do it. She hoped that he would himself restore her to liberty without knowing it, and that she could return to her place without appearing to have positively remarked all these delicate circumstances of their tete-a-tete. But while waiting for the unknown to sleep more soundly, Consuelo herself, whom the calmness of his breathing and the immobility of his repose had reassured, again fell asleep, overpowered by the exhaustion which succeeds violent agitations. When she awoke once more, the head of her companion was bent upon her own. His mask was unfastened, their cheeks touched, their breaths intermingled. She made a quick motion to draw back, without thinking to look at the features of the unknown, which, moreover, would have been quite useless on account of the darkness that prevailed without and especially within the carriage. The unknown pressed Consuelo to his bosom, the warmth of which magnetically enkindled hers and took away from her the strength and the desire to withdraw. Still, there was nothing violent or brutal in the gentle and burning embrace of this man. Her chastity did not feel terrified or stained by his caresses, and Consuelo, as if a charm had been cast upon her, forgetting the reserve, we might even say the virgin coldness, from which she had never been tempted to depart. Even in the arms of the fiery Anzaletto, returned to the unknown, the enthusiastic and penetrating kiss he sought upon her lips. As all was strange and unusual in that mysterious being, Consuelo's involuntary transport neither appeared to surprise, nor to embolden, nor to intoxicate him. He again pressed her slowly to his heart, and though this was with an extraordinary force, she did not feel the pain which a violent pressure always occasions to a delicate being. Neither did she experience the terror and the shame which such an extraordinary forgetfulness of her accustomed modesty must have occasioned after an instant's reflection. Not a thought troubled the ineffable security of that instant of love, felt and shared as by a miracle. It was the first in her life. She had an instinct, or rather a revelation of it, and the charm was so complete, so profound, so divine, that it seemed as if nothing could ever remove it. The unknown appeared to her a being apart, something angelic, whose love sanctified her. He lightly passed the tips of his fingers, softer than the tissue of a flower, over Consuelo's eyelids, and on the moment she again fell asleep as by an enchantment. 
he remained this time awake, but calm in appearance, as if he were invincible, as if the arrows of temptation could not penetrate his armor. He watched while bearing Consuelo towards unknown regions, like an archangel carrying under his wing a young seraph annihilated and consumed by the rays of the divinity. The dawn of day and the cold of the morning at last awoke Consuelo from this species of lethargy. She found herself alone in the carriage and asked if she had dreamed that she loved. She tried to lower one of the blinds, but they were all fastened by a lock outside or by a spring, the secret of which she could not discover. She could receive the air and see past in broken and confused lines the white or green borders of the road, but she could not discern anything in the fields, nor consequently make any observation, any discovery, respecting the direction she was pursuing. There was something absolute and despotic in the protection extended over her. It seemed like kidnapping. She began to feel anxious and terrified. The unknown having disappeared, the poor sinner felt at last all the anguish of shame, all the stupor of astonishment. Perhaps there were not many opera girls, as the cantatrices and dancers were then called, who would have tormented themselves about a kiss, returned in the dark to a very discreet unknown, especially with the guarantee given by Carl to the poor Barina that his figure and face were admirable. But this act of folly was so much at variance with the manners and ideas of the good and pure Consuelo that she was deeply humiliated. She asked forgiveness of the shade of Albert and blushed to the very depth of her soul at having been at heart unfaithful to his memory in so sudden a manner and with so little reflection and dignity. It must be, thought she, that the tragical events of the evening and my joy at my deliverance caused an attack of delirium. Otherwise, how could I have imagined that I was in love with a man who has never spoken a single word to me, whose name I do not know, and whose features I have not even seen? It resembles the most shameful adventures of a masquerade, those ridiculous surprises of the senses of which Carilla accused herself before me, and the possibility of which I could not conceive in any other woman but her. What contempt this man must entertain for me! If he did not take advantage of my bewilderment, it is because I am under the protection of his honor, or, indeed, because an oath doubtless binds him to more respectable duties, or, indeed, finally, because he justly despised me. May he have understood or guessed that it was on my part only an attack of fever, a transport of the brain. In spite of all these reproaches, Consuela could not help feeling a regret more bitter than all the railings of her conscience. The regret of having lost that traveling companion, whom she did not feel strength either to accuse or to blame. He remained in the depth of her thought as a superior being, invested with a magic power, perhaps diabolical, but certainly irresistible. She was afraid of him, and yet she desired not to be so suddenly and forever separated from him. The carriage stopped, and Carl came to open the blind. If you would like to walk a little, Signor, said he to her, 
Monsieur the Chevalier requests you to do so. The ascent is difficult for the horses, and we are in a thick wood. It seems there is no danger. Consuela put her hand upon Carl's shoulder and leaped upon the sand, without giving him time to let down the steps. She hoped to see her traveling companion, her impromptu lover. She did indeed see him, but thirty paces in front of her, consequently with his back turned and still dressed in that vast gray cloak which he appeared determined to wear by day as well as by night. His step and the little she could see of his hair and his boots announced a great distinction and the elegance of a man careful to enhance by a gallant toilette, as was then said, the advantages of his person. The hilt of his sword, receiving the rays of the rising sun, glittered at his side like a star, and the perfume of the powder which persons of bon ton then chose with the greatest care, left behind him in the morning air the balmy trace of a man comme il faut. Alas, my God, thought Consuelo, he is perhaps some coxcomb, some lord of pretext or some haughty noble. Whoever he may be, he turns his back upon me this morning, and he is quite right. Why do you call him the Chevalier? asked she of Carl, continuing her reflections aloud. Because I have heard him called so by the postillions. The Chevalier of what? Monsieur the Chevalier, quite short. But why do you seek to know, Signora, since he desires to remain unknown to you? It seems to me that he renders to you sufficiently great services at the peril of his life for you to be so obliging as to remain quiet in that respect. As to me, I would travel ten years with him without asking where he was carrying me. He is so handsome, so brave, so good, so gay. So gay? That man gay? Certainly. He is so happy at having saved you that he cannot be silent. He asks me a thousand questions about you, about Spandau, about Gottlieb, about myself, about the king of Prussia. And I, I tell him all that I know, all that has happened to me, even the adventure of Rosewald. It does me so much good to talk bohemian and to be listened to by a man of sense who comprehends me, while all those asses of Prussians only understand their own devil of a language. Then he is a bohemian also? I allowed myself to ask him the question, and he replied, No, quite short, even rather dryly. So I was wrong in questioning him when it was his good pleasure to make me answer. Is he always masked? Only when he approaches you, Signora. Oh, he is a wit. Doubtless he wishes to perplex you. Carl's confidence and good humor did not entirely reassure Consuelo. She saw clearly that to a great deal of determination and bravery he united an uprightness and simplicity of heart which could be easily abused. Had he not depended upon Mayor's good faith, had he not pushed herself into the chamber of that wretch, and now he blindly permitted an unknown to carry off Consuelo and perhaps expose her to more refined and more dangerous seductions. She recalled the billet of the invisibles. 
A snare is laid for thee. A new danger threatens thee. Distrust anyone who would induce thee to escape before he have given thee sure notice. Persevere in thy strength, etc. No other billet had come to confirm that one, and Consuelo, yielding to the joy of again finding Carl, had believed that worthy servant sufficiently authorized to serve her. Was not the unknown a traitor? Whither did he carry her with so much mystery? Consuelo knew no friend whose resemblance could agree with the brilliant figure of the chevalier, unless it were Frederick de Trenck. But Carl knew the latter perfectly, therefore it was not he. The Count de St. Germain was older, Cagliostro not so large, while looking from a distance at the unknown and endeavoring to discover some old friend in him, Consuelo was convinced that she had never seen anyone walk with so much ease and grace. Albert alone could have been endowed with so much majesty, but his slow step and habitual dejection excluded that air of strength, that lightness, that nightly gait which characterized the unknown. The wood became thinner, and the horses began to trot in order to come up with the travelers, who had outstripped them. The chevalier, Without turning, extended his arms and waved his handkerchief, whiter than snow. Carl understood the signal and assisted Consuelo into the carriage, saying, Apropos, Signora, you will find in the large boxes under the seat linen, dresses, and all that you may require to breakfast and dine in case of need. There are also books. In fine, this appears to be a traveling hotel and it seems as if you would not leave it very soon. Carl said Consuelo, I desire you to ask Monsieur Le Chevalier if, when we have crossed the frontier, I shall be free to present my thanks to him, and to go where I please. Oh, Signor, I shall never dare to say so disobliging a thing to so amiable a man. No matter, I exact it. You will give me his answer at the next relay, since he does not wish to speak to me. The reply of the unknown was that the lady was perfectly free, and that all her desires would be orders, but that her safety in the life of her guide, as well as that of Carl, depended on her not thwarting the designs already formed, respecting her journey and the choice of her asylum. Carl added, with an air of candid reproach, that this distrust appeared to have afflicted the chevalier, and that he had become sad and gloomy. Consuela felt some remorse, and sent him word that she confided her fate to the care of the invisibles. The whole day passed without incident. Shut up and concealed in the carriage like a prisoner of state, Consuela could form no opinion respecting the direction of her journey. She changed her toilette with the greatest satisfaction, for in the daylight she had perceived some drops of mare's black blood upon her clothes, and those marks horrified her. She tried to read, but her mind was too much engrossed. She determined to sleep as much as possible, hoping to forget more and more the mortification of her last adventure. But when night came, and the unknown remained upon the box, she experienced a greater confusion still. He evidently had forgotten nothing 
and his respectful delicacy rendered Consuelo still more ridiculous and more culpable in her own eyes. At the same time, she was troubled by the discomfort and the fatigue which he endured upon the seat, narrow for two persons side by side. He who appeared so exquisite, with the soldier, very properly attired as a domestic indeed, but whose confiding and prolix conversation must certainly weary him after a while. In fine, exposed to the freshness of the night and deprived of sleep, so much courage was perhaps allied to presumption. Did he believe himself irresistible? Did he think that Consuelo, recovered from the first surprise of her imagination, would not defend herself from his too paternal familiarity? The poor child said all this to herself, to console her humbled pride. But the most certain is that she desired to see him again, and feared above all, his contempt or an excess of virtue on his part, which would render them forever strangers to each other. Towards midnight they stopped in a ravine. The weather was lowering. The rushing of the wind amongst the leaves resembled that of running water. Signora, said Carl, opening the carriage door, we have reached the most inconvenient moment of our journey. We are about to cross the frontier. With boldness and money anything can be done they say. Still, it would not be prudent for you to make this attempt upon the main road and under the eyes of the police. I risk nothing, I who am nothing. I shall accompany the coach at a walk, with one horse, as if I were carrying this new purchase to my master at a neighboring country seat. You will go across the country with Monsieur Le Chevalier, and will perhaps pass through some rather difficult paths." Do you feel strong enough to travel a league on foot over bad roads? At Consuelo's reply in the affirmative, she found the chevalier's arm ready to receive her own. Carl added, If you reach the place of rendezvous before me, you will wait for me without fear. Will you not, Signora? I fear nothing, replied Consuelo, with a mixture of tenderness and of pride towards the unknown since I am under the protection of this gentleman. But, my poor Carl, added she, is there no danger for you? Carl shrugged his shoulders as he kissed Consuelo's hand. Then he quickly ran to harness the horse, and Consuelo immediately departed across the fields with her taciturn protector. End of chapter 21